0: It's episode 83 of The Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bein. Today on the program is design strategist and disability advocate, Liz Jackson. She's the founder of The Disabled List and the startup, Thissen. We're going to talk about perspectives in disabled design and how empathy can often get in the way. Liz, thanks for being on the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad
0: to be here. Yeah. Or maybe I should say thanks for being back on the program uh, because, <laughs> yeah. uh, we did this. We did a couple of live episodes at a conference. In Rottingham. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And you were one of the guests there. And I felt like the format of that was interesting but rushed. So, yes. Uh, and you just had so much good stuff to say in the presentation that you had given earlier. I thought, oh, definitely, Liz, you got to come back on the show. And so thanks for being here
1: no thanks so much i was I was sort of wanting to kind of poke more back at you so i'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to do so now. I think we'll have a lot of fun.
0: great no, that sounds fun yeah uh good so i i normally I would ask you about your background and how you got to this point and, and things like that. but before we start that, I want to ask you a little bit about language and the kind of the language of identity and um and really uh frankly ask you how we should proceed here I, is it should, should i talk about d- a disabled person or people with disabilities or disabled design or design for disability there's a lot there uh, that i was I, i'm wondering if, if you have perspectives on this
1: yeah so um i feel like there's actually without realizing it i feel like you brought up three separate buckets of mm-hmm. language Um, so I'm going to go through each of those really quickly. Uh, the first is, is, uh, there's a campaign, a hashtag on Twitter. The hashtag is say the word. Um, and the goal of it is to get people saying the word disability. Um, we spend a lot of our lives really kind of trying to avoid disability. We're told from a young age Mm -hmm. not to stare. Um, and so, um, you know, the goal is uh, say the word. There's um, a, an important study out called uh, special needs is an ineffective euphemism. And what it found was is that talking around the word disability actually increases the stigma uh. of disability. Um, and so, you know, my whole thing is is if it's hard for you to say the word, uh, just drop the F-bomb before it makes it <laughs> a whole lot easier. Um, so that's the first bucket. The second bucket is the question you had about person-first language versus identity-first hmm. language. Um, so person-first language is a person with disability. So the best way I know how to describe both of these is I was person-first language, so I that meant I didn't want my disability to define me. I don't mean to get political. I'm only going to do hmm. so this one time. I became identity-first when Trump got elected because I saw... That my power uh, came from being part of a collective whole, of being a part of a community and a culture. And so I became a disabled person. And so you're actually starting to see an incredible shift in the disability community where more and more people are using identity-first language, even though in media it's still presumed that person-first is the go-to. But I think you'll really start to see that shift in the next couple of years. Got it. And then the last bucket is this question that you have around um, design for disability. What do we call it? And I think this is actually where my, the majority of my work stems from. And I think um, will be probably it'll play into a lot of what we discussed today. I remember a couple of years ago, I Googled uh, the phrase design for disability. And what I saw is that it yields um, more than 10 times as many search results as disability design. This idea that disabled people are recipients of design has embedded itself into our language. Hmm. But in, the, in reality, what we find is is that disabled people are innovators. We invented everything from the internet to email to cruise control to the bicycle, the iPhone touchscreen the electric toothbrush, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, one of the things we're really trying to figure out is, is what is this terminology that we use? So at my organization, we use disability-led design. Um, But one of the things that I frequently ask designers is, is because they'll say a term like inclusive design or accessible design or adaptive design. And my question to them is, is do you really mean inclusive? Or are you just avoiding the word disability? And so that's something I really hope designers can start to ask themselves.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So can we uh, back up to that phrase, accessibility? Because that is something, as in my own uh, personal experience, from years of doing work with web standards, that was always a big focus of this idea that the content that you create for a website should be accessible to the broadest possible audience. And how does that fit in in this conversation?
1: Yeah, I, you know. Accessibility is absolutely essential to disability. In design, I think people are drawing this parallel between disability and accessibility, and they think they're the same thing, Mm. and they're not, right? What I say is is that accessibility is only one part of disability, and I actually don't do accessibility at all. I do culture. Um, I ask myself, right, accessibility asks, how does a person uh, gain entry to this space, and I ask myself, why would a person want to gain entry to this space?
0: Ah, interesting.
1: Yeah. And so for me, I, I, my work is done in tandem uh, with people that do accessibility. Um, but I do disability and I don't do accessibility. So those feel very, you know, distinct to me.
0: Got it. Got it. So uh, can we back up and then sort of get the story of how this became a focus for you uh, and, um, and sort of some of the highlights along the way of, of the work that you've done?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting. In my work, I have, and I think it's important for me to tell this element of the story. In my work, I have increasingly made it a point to not tell, um, my origin story. Um, because what happens is in disability, when you tell an origin story, it tends to be a tragedy. Hmm. And then what it does is it creates this narrative where the disabled person then needs to sort of overcome the tragedy and people are then very inspired. Um, and so, you know, it's important to me to tell more complex stories about disability that don't follow in these arcs. Um, and so what I'm sort of happy to say is and, and feel very open about is I, my entry into this space started March 30th of 2012. Uh, for me, the question became, why do I have so much choice with my eyeglass frames, but I don't with my cane? And so for me, it wasn't the change in my body, actually, that really caused me to crumble. It was that I had lost the um, ability to choose uh, according to my identity Um, and so, um, what had happened was, is I happened across a beautiful purple cane. Um, and, um, I had this day and this is, this is literally like, I didn't know anything about design before this. So I had this day where, um, this purple cane came in the mail. I went and I, I I live at, and this may not make sense to the majority or many of your viewers, but I live at 125th street in Harlem. You can express on the A down to 59th street and there's no stop. So it takes seven minutes to get there. You can get to Columbus circle. um, and it was cold outside. So what I would do for physical therapy is, is I would go down to Columbus circle and I would wander around indoors. Um, and on this one particular day, it was the day after my cane, my purple cane came, I got on the subway and this woman looked me up and down and I assumed that what she was going to say to me is, is what is wrong? What happened? Because that's what had been happening in the months prior to my acquiring this purple cane. But instead what she said to me was, is nice cane, where did you get it? And it just blew my mind. Like I couldn't believe it. And so at Columbus Circle, there's a, a J crew there. And this is right, this is like Jenna Lyons era. So I wander in the J Crew and there's this table of eyeglass frames. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why are eyeglasses the things that are available in mainstream retailers? Like you either wear them without a prescription or you buy them here and you take them to your optometrist to get them filled, right? It's a two-part process. Right. Um, and so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the woman on the subway and I wander into the store and I happen across this row of t-shirts and I decided I want a purple shirt to match my purple cane. But they didn't have a purple shirt, uh, but they had these other colors. And that's when it occurred to me, oh, I want a cane to match these shirts. And I was like, Holy shit! I've got the million dollar idea. So I like rush home like really slowly, and I I get home and I email J Crew and I say, "You need to sell canes." And I got sort of um uh, a muted response back. Um and. Uh, at the time, I had been watching the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies, and I decided that I needed a badass superhero alter ego. <laughs> so I made myself into the Girl with the Purple Cane, and for years I just used it to harass J Crew. And the thing that I didn't le- realize right away was is that I was actually starting to build an argument around this idea of disability design, and ultimately disability led design. Yep. Interestingly, uh, I uh, the woman, Re Noragard, um, who designed my purple cane, has become a huge force in my life. Um, she's just a beloved mentor. Um, and actually after this interview, I'm going to go spend some time with her. She's at S Y partners now. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's fascinating how, like when you just push back a little bit, like life really does start to open up.
0: Right. So from the sort of J crew incident, you, you turn that into more of a, a a career in, Sort of consulting with companies or?
1: We do a few things. So, yeah, we consult with companies. Um, and I, it's, that's just been astounding because um, it's incredible to me the, the, the scope of the companies that we're working with and the, the very little knowledge they have. Hmm. And so, you know, I get to go into these spaces with, I think, some of the smartest people on earth. And I get to blow their minds. And it just goes to show, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm smart. I don't know that I'm particularly brilliant. Um, it just goes to show how much of our lives we spend looking away from disability and how delightful it can be once they start to open themselves to it. Um, so we consult. Um, we're also, we're a disability-led organization. Um, and a d- disability-led organizations are fairly new Um, You know, traditionally, when you would see a disability organization, it would be created by a parent or a teacher or a doctor. Mm. Um, And they they tend to want to cure us. So disability-led organizations are really focused not on a cure but on living with. Um, And so we do a lot of advocacy. Um, Through the advocacy, we've created a website called Critical Access, A-X-I-S, And it's basically a repository of disability representation in media. So we're building a database and actual data around how disabled people are represented in the mainstream. And this is vitally important to the work that we're doing around design because what happens is is when a designer gets um, a brief and and they're told, okay, you're going to do this disability design project, what is the first thing they do? The the first thing they do is, is they go online and they Google disability design. And what is the thing that comes up, right? The things that come up are not uh, disabled people uh, articulating our needs and our wants, right? The things that come up is how brands articulate their interactions with us. And those brand interactions are highly biased. They play into these tropes and uh, they prevent design from progressing in the way that we need it to. And so through data, we're hoping to really combat that and create an argument to brands that if you do it this slightly different way, it's going to have wide-ranging effects.
0: Could you give me some examples of, of how brands sort of fall into those tropes?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a variety of things. that, And you can go on the website and sort of kind of bump through it um, on your own. Um, one of the, the main things that happens is – I'm trying to think of a really good example. Oh, so disability is used as sort of a, an announcement. So when I actually start consulting with a company, the thing – that i say to them is um whoever is in the company right i say right because i'm usually working with people who are sort of mid level who are influential um but are not key decision makers yep. and so i say to them whatever you do wait as long as possible to announce that you're doing the thing that we're working on because what happens is is you work with a company they decide they're going to do a thing they announce the thing and then what happens is is the powers that be realize that the entire uh, hit the all of the goodness comes from the announcement, right? And so then what happens is is those those mid level people lose the traction that they have internally because the the powers that be realize you can't announce something after you've announced it, and so they lose interest. And so one of the things that we are tracking is is brands that announce things that never come to fruition. Um, and there's a few. Um, the main one is is a Valspar paint. Uh, sort of initiative called Color for All, where they made these sort of colorblind glasses that they were giving out. And if you actually go to the Color for All website, um, it's, it directs you back to GoDaddy. And this is only a couple huh. of years ago that they announced it. Right. Another one is, is a lot of brands claim to be the first and they claim to be innovating when these innovations actually exist um, already within the disability community. And so essentially what they're doing is, is they're erasing... Um, the work of what disabled people were doing before. And the key example of that is, is Lego announced something called Braille bricks, which were these um, were Lego bricks that you could sort of read Braille through. And they announced it as this new innovation without acknowledging that tactiles, which is a, 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 a Lego type product that's been around since the 1980s that was created by a blind family, has been doing this work. And tactiles is very expensive. It's about $700 for the kit. Um, but they're 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 beloved in, in the blind community, um, and the reason tactiles is so expensive is is because nobody would ever ha, has ever invested in it, right? Because people right. don't invest in disabled people. So when Lego came along and they announced Braille bricks, not only did they claim to innovate, right? The other thing they did was is they made this product free, right? They turned it into charity, and so in one fell swoop, not only did they erase tactiles, but they essentially put them out of business right? And so there's these different things that play out. Um, Another one is, is so we went um, on to, once the, the moment I realized, oh, we can create data. So I went through all the videos, I counted the amount of words that disabled people spoke. And then I went into YouTube and I cataloged and categorized the comments. And one of the first things I realized is, is the more words a disabled person speaks, the less believable the ad is perceived to be. So we're learning really important stuff through this. And it's just about, you know, getting brands to, to take action.
0: This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. These are the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. It's so easy to use. You can get access to far more parts on your laptop and make your nice MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop it's plug and play with no drivers so you can enjoy up to dual 4k displays with hdmi and display link video connectors plus usb 3 USB-C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things uh, in high-volume manufacturing and all sorts of other IT products as well. Plus, they have rigorous test cycles and quality control. That means all their products are tested above industry standards. So, if you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's pro-concierge program and test drive any one of their docking stations today, visit Kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out the Kensington Docking Stations. That's Kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, great. I have uh, this this impression a lot of what you were talking about with that like how brands talk about the work that they're doing feels so much like, hey, we're here to help and fix uh yes. all the stuff that's wrong um and very little of it coming from a place of of either co-design or uh designing with rather than for
1: exactly
0: i think a lot of it c- comes back to the very basic process right like when you look at i don't know anything written about design thinking or design process it almost always starts with define the problem and mm-hmm. just the very nature of that phrase problem here i think is is where a lot of this sort of the uh, the perspective starts yeah
1: yeah i mean my my partner at the disabled list alex haygard and i the thing that we say is is that the defining of the problem is actually the problem
0: yeah that's a much better way to put it but so tell me a little bit more about that then and, and
1: yeah so i sort of i have this kind of like story that i like to tell and it's uh, again it's just it's it's informed everything that we've done at the disabled list after. So, um, a couple of years ago, um, and it's funny. So like my whole thing is, is like, so I rag on Ido, Um, but then one of these, like, <laughs> like, like six months ago, I discovered I'm basically like famous within Ido, even though they never talked to me. So like I tell this story with like even more gusto. So, um, <laughs> I'm like deter- I'm determined for them to to respond. So what happened was is a couple of years ago, IDEO invited me into their offices, and they said they wanted to show me a technology that's they created that's intended to get disabled people hired. And so I said to them, "Well, what disabled people did you hire to create this technology that's intended to get disabled people hired?" And they were like, "None." And I was like, oh, you're screwed." Um, and so what happened was is uh, they showed me the door, and it really got me kind of thinking critically about design thinking. And so for me, I, I sort of have this this methodology that the, it's sort of the initial methodology that I created, even though it's sort of expanded since then, and I call it design questioning. And what it does is it looks at design thinking from the user's perspective. because I think what a lot of designers don't realize is is that uh, in disability, we side eye a lot of the stuff that happens. So, you know, if you look at step one of design thinking, it says cultivate uh, empathy through sort of observations and interviews. But, you know, to a disabled person, this can feel a little bit less like empathy and a little bit more like designers are gleaning our ideas and our life hacks Mm -hmm. um, and then selling them back to us as inspirational do-good, much in the way that, you know, Lego did it. Um, And I could tell a story of um, OXO if you want, or I can um, kind of keep pushing through, but The second step, and this is really where it gets to the meat of it, is defining the problem, but because, right, because disabled people aren't leading the process, it, um, it, tends to define us as the problem rather than defining the problem as the problem. Uh, So what happens is right. You have our insights gleaned. You've defined us as the problem. And then you enter this iterative process of ideation, prototyping and testing, which leads to what I call the unacknowledged sixth step of design thinking, or as I call it design thinking, because we're expected to be grateful for that, which has been done for us, right? We're grateful that Lego made braille bricks, you know? Um, And so it's just this frustrating process. And, Um, And for me, it's really kind of begged a lot of questions about what empathy actually really serves to do in design. And and for me, what I believe is, is that it it reifies power structures.
0: Oh, say more about that.
1: So it's, it's interesting. If you look at the origins of empathy... What you'll find is the word's only 111 years old. It, it was, the word was coined in 1909. Huh. Um, and it was actually brought to the United States from, there was a German psychologist. His name was Theodor Lips, L-I-P-P-S. Um, and he was, he was Freud's mentor. Uh, he was friends with Rilke and Rodin. And he just lived in, in this era of, of sort of world-changing brilliance. And the thing that he realized was, is if you go into, right, if you go into a museum and you encounter a great work of art, um, you may take a step back, right, in awe. You may tug at the color of your shirt. You may sway. And the thing that he realizes is that people are physically moved by works of great human expression. And so he developed this term. It's called Ein Fulung, And that's really what it meant. It meant physically moved by works of great human expression. And the term, it took off in Germany. And when it came to America, it's meaning it not only did the word shift from i to empathy, but it's meaning also shifted. And it no longer meant feeling physically moved by works of great human expression, but it came to mean feeling sympathy, or as we experience it in disability, feeling pity for a person's situation or circumstance, right? And so the thing that's so fascinating to me is, is in this time when, right, our societal perceptions of, Disability were shifting from pity to inspiration. At the same time, our societal perceptions of empathy were shifting from inspiration to pity. And in this process, I think these two sort of kind of convoluted one another, and we've lost the ability to kind of parse out one emotion, pity, from the other, inspiration. And and so what that does when you when you kind of think about it in design processes is it silences um, the recipient, right? It really creates a dividing line between who gets to design and who is being designed for, right? So right. It, it creates a separation and and through those separations and through sort of understanding who gets to articulate the how the empathy happened, right? Because you never hear from the person that was empathized with, you only hear from the empathizer. So through that process, um, you know, I think what it comes to do is, is it serves to reify class and power structures. And so um, it really tends to kind of perpetuate a lot of marginalizations
0: interesting interesting so uh that the, that's a sort of designing for here i've made this for you and i'm going to sort of take the credit for all of that even though what i designed was in, almost entirely if not inspired copied from what you were doing already
1: is that exactly sort of inform, a, informed by your knowledge yeah
0: yeah yeah um you wrote this interesting uh article in the new york times about uh this idea of like being the original life hackers and and so much of uh what this what disabled people uh were were doing was was then being sort of co-opted as products and and frankly uh i think as you said you know people profiting from those observations yeah
1: exactly yeah um so i tell in the new york times i tell the story of uh betsy farber so I work in this beautiful office in in Midtown, and I sit across from uh, a beloved mentor. I lovingly refer to him as the world's most industrial designer. Um, His name is Tucker Veermeister, and he has the world's largest toothpaste collection. (laughs) Um, And he... he, So OXO Kitchen Products, which are those sort of gummy, large um, kitchen products, um, he invented the grip, the good grips of those. And so... through my work, I had understood that OXO kitchen products were sort of heralded as this universal example of universal design, right? Right, right, right. If you, if you went on the OXO website, you would read the story that says Sam Farber saw that his wife Betsy was having a hard time peeling a carrot due to arthritis, so he made a better peeler for her to use. And so this one particular day, I just happened to ask Tucker about Betsy because I I hadn't ever heard anything about her. I'd only heard of Sam and he said to me, he's like, Oh yeah. He's like, Did you did you know she was a designer? And I said, No, I did not know she was a designer. And he said, Yeah, she was around all the time. And so I sort of sat on it for a few days and kind of got to thinking. And I actually couldn't think of a single designer that I knew that would sort of let her husband inspirationally make her another peeler. So I called up Betsy one day and I said I, I asked her about it. And the first thing she said to me was, is I'm going to go down in history as being Sam's lowly crippled wife. And it was actually my idea in the first place. Huh. Um, and the thing was, is as we talked further, the thing she said was, is neither her nor Sam started out with the intent of this being the, the OXO brand story. It's just that once you start to get into, to artic- once brands get into articulating um, what it is that's being made, they always need sort of a, uh, a non-disabled savior. That is how these stories yeah. have historically been told. And so it occurred to nobody that Betsy could have ha- played a part in making it for herself.
0: Wow. That's um, that's pretty intense.
1: It happens a lot. Um, my friend Bess um, just recently uncovered, um, so Candyland, uh, it was apparently, the story that was told was, as it was made for kids with polio. Uh, yeah, polio. The board what- games. Yeah, and what oh. she discovered was, is, yeah, it was made for kids with polio by a woman that had polio. uh uh-huh. um, And so, like, my big one is, is I'm trying, to, I'm convinced that, um, so Kellogg's, um, it's widely sort of told that the Kellogg brothers invented cereal, um, but they uh, owned a sanitarium. And it's my belief that it was the disabled people in the sanitarium that came up with serial. So, you know, it's just like once you start to kind of learn the narrative arc, right. you can start to piece those stories apart and 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 really figure out what really happened.
0: There's sort of the origin of the solution and then another story of the capitalization of it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Always.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so so can we talk about the change uh that the advocacy that you are involved in is that you're hoping to see? Right and especially sort of in the context of uh most of the people listening to this are practitioners they're they're um they're in their jobs in their companies and thinking like yes, absolutely what what should we do how do i uh, how, how do we change our organization uh such that this isn't just the afterthought or the sort of the warm glow
1: it's hard yeah um so i work I work a lot with a mentor uh Seth Godin, and like the thing that he taught me was is that. For me, as a perpetual outsider in a company, I need to focus and I need to make friends with outliers within a company, right? So if I make friends with somebody in a company, then what happens is is that person will begin to advocate internally for these different ways. Um, I'm working with a massive company right now, and I've had a lot of success in there's a handful of outliers that I work with. Hmm. And through that process, in the company, they have taken on... A series of projects that they've really committed to and invested in and they've turned out really good. And those projects, some of them actually turned into products um, that are now out on the market. Um, And for a while, that felt really good. And that felt like success until I reached a certain point when I realized, oh, they want more projects. They want more products. So early on, the thing that I had said to the people at that company was, is you need to um, hire disabled consultants at every point. And they've done that at every point. But at a certain point, the thing I realized was, is yes, they're continuing to hire disabled consultants. And those consultants and the ways that they're bringing them on are reaping a lot of rewards for the company. But those disabled consultants only get paid once. Right And there's no disabled people in the company, and so you know it's the thing that I realize is 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 it it is a long term commitment. You start out as an outlier, you advocate for a thing, then there's tension created around that thing because that thing needs to expand um, and so right, the next step for this large company is is they need to start hiring disabled people, and then the step after that I imagine is that they're going to need to let those disabled people become decision makers, mm. right. And to really lead, and so it's just you know it's it's uh, um, a place where um, oftentimes the outliers they um, start to ex- they become they they feel very enthusiastic about it until they start to experience discomfort of, of it because they then are playing a role in the process that is holding things back, and so it's you know everything I do is a process of self-reflection. <laughs> and it's yeah. actually, it's, it's, this work that I'm doing is brutal. It's, um, it's traumatic at times. Um, and so I think the way that we're told about disability, we think that it can feel good. Um, but I think people need to get into this understanding that it's going to reach a point where it doesn't feel good. And that's the moment you know that you're actually doing the work.
0: Well, if you're talking about the changing of the distribution of power, uh, that's that's not something that everyone's going to be very happy and, and do press releases about. Oh, totally. Right.
1: Um, yeah, they do press releases around the project and the product.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm.
0: So uh, you're talking about cultural change, uh, which in a way is the sort of increase in diversity of the people who participate in the creation and decision-making of products. Um what about the process itself? Uh, you talked about, like, design thinking and some inherent fl- – perhaps some h- inherent flaws in the way that we perceive the steps that we take to make stuff. What about changes there as well?
1: So this is actually a lot – this is actually a lot of the work that my my partner Alex is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about sort of one example. And to talk about this example, I need to get into a little bit of disability theory. So there are um, – There are really, there's, people would say there's two predominant models of disability, though my organization operates under the premise that there's three. So there's the medical model of disability, which is a derivative of industrialization. Hmm. Um, And basically what the medical model states is, is that a person is disabled by their bodies. Um, And so when you hear about disability through like a medical diagnosis, um, when you hear stories about disabled people overcoming, um, those are medical model stories. Mm -hmm. Then there's the social model. And the social model was created in response to the medical model. And it really kind of came about, started coming uh, of age through the civil rights era. And what the social model states is, is, yes, disabled people are, or people are disabled, but not by their bodies. They're disabled by the world around them. They're disabled by physical and societal barriers. Um, and then the third one is the cultural model, right? which is just this more complex view that that really interests me. what um, wh- like what is this innate knowledge that disabled people hold, and what can that contribute to society? Uh-huh. You know what We'll just keep that one to the side. Let's stick to medical and social model. Sure. So what happens is is a company um, will start to understand these two people within a company will start to understand these two models, and they'll say to themselves, okay, so we're going, to, we're going to operate based on the social model. It's more liberatory, and um, you know, we think we can remove a barrier. And so they come up with an idea for a solution. And so then what they do is, is they go out uh, into the world because they need to find users and testers. And what do they say? Well, they say, we are looking for blind and low-vision people, right? Mm. And so while they have approached this project from the social model, from a UX research perspective, they have immediately jumped back into the medical model, right? Because they are looking at uh, blindness and low vision. And so one of the key things that we're doing to kind of provide a resource for designers is is how is it that you can uh, stay within the model that you're working in? So for us, what that means is if if you're operating from the social model, instead of going out into the world and saying, um, I'm looking for blind or low vision people, instead what you would do is go out into the world and say, can you access this feature visually right Mm -hmm. and so what that does is it starts to create to kind of uh remove some of the confusion about what disability is um because you know because we sort of balance between these different models i think that's why it's so hard for any individual person to really define and understand disability and so you know a lot of that work it's it's um it's sort of difficult to articulate it again. It takes a a huge investment of time, but it's, it's really powerful and the outcomes have been spectacular. So yeah. So stuff like that.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, so a part of this feels like there's a conversation around the supply side of what you're doing as well in, in that, um, the best way for, uh, the products to be designed most appropriately is to have them designed by, uh, the disabled people, yet we would need more and more and more design, disabled people who are designers and so yeah. i mean and you're doing a sort of uh, tell me a little bit about the program around place the, is it internships or fellowships that you're that you're trying to set up to help disabled people get more training and access
1: yeah so i actually i started a program called the with fellowship hmm. and I actually, um, we stopped doing it and it's for a really important reason. And this is actually kind of a big part of, 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 um, again, what we're trying to do. So, um, when I first started the With fellowship, it partners creative disabled people with top design studios and creative spaces um, and the goal, what we believed is, is sort of traditionally in fellowships, the goal is to grow and change the person. But what we were trying to do is, is we believed if you allow a disabled person to be disabled in a space, mm-hmm. what they fundamentally do is they grow and change the space. And that actually proved to be true. But what happened was, is early on, uh, one of the top design schools in the U S reached out and they had a student that they were interested in for the fellowship. But they also said to me, they said, do you want to see our disability numbers? And I was like, hell yeah, like, of course I do. Um, And there were two things I knew going into it. The first thing that I knew was, is that um, on average about 11% of any college population is disabled. Um, And the second thing I knew was, is how these numbers are gleaned, right? So these aren't students that identify as disabled. These are students that go through a hugely stigmatizing process where they first have to go to their doctors and get a doctor's note. Then they have to take it to school services There's further testing there. And then if they're lucky, they may or may not get certain accommodations. They then have a note that they have to hand deliver to their teacher. But the thing that most of these students don't realize is, is before they've handed that note to their teacher, the teacher has been taught over sort of summer learning that that student is a legal liability. And so that they can only offer the services that they're permitted to from that note. Right. So it's a horrible process. So there's probably larger numbers of students that are disabled than actually the 11% um, demonstrates. So when this school sent me their disability numbers, I was stunned. There were certain departments where it was 30 or 40% of their students were disabled. And so I started, I was like, okay, and I still want to research this. I just, again, people don't invest in disabled people. But there's there's a three part process here. The first part is, is why are students entering design in much like, exponentially higher numbers, right? And right. you can boil that back to the New York Times story, right? Disabled people are the original life hackers, right? Uh, we spend our lives cultivating an intuitive creativity because we're forced to navigate a world that's not built for our bodies. So of course they're going to want to apply, right, that, that thing that they've cultivated and learned their whole life into a professional career. So that step one feels fairly obvious. Step two is, is what is happening to these students year after year in design school? And for me, this is, I think, vitally important because I think these are the students that are, are the first to drop out, right? I think these are the students that are not getting their needs met. And then the third part of it is, is what's happening to these students after they graduate? And I think, right, I don't, I don't know the last time I encountered a disabled creative director, right? I think these are the students that aren't getting jobs, right? These are the graduates that aren't getting jobs. And so for me, what I believe is, is there is a way, the right... It's not just disabled students that are not getting their needs met. There's this whole other subset of students that are also not getting their needs met. And these are students that have taken an interest in disability but don't even know what disability is. And and so my belief is is if we can start to incorporate disability studies curriculum into design schools, Mm -hmm. what that does is it creates a space for these two students to meet each other and to start working with one another so that when they enter the workforce, they don't think that disabled people are designed for. They enter the workforce realizing that this is mutual knowledge that needs to be shared. Yeah. And so really that's become the focus is is it, the longer that I try and sort of make this with fellowship work, the more I'm I'm, I'm focusing on a Band-Aid. And so now I, I spend a lot of my time advocating and, and pushing and trying to get a design school to to really invest in, in disability studies curriculum. It hasn't happened yet.
0: Oh, that was my next question. I was wondering just the progress on that and the receptiveness of that message.
1: Yeah, I've got I've got a school here in New York that I've begun working comprehensively with. Um and so hopefully, you know, I can discuss more about that in the fall. Mm-hmm. But and there's schools that are interested, it's just uh it hasn't happened yet.
0: Right, right. Where can we learn more? There's so much here that we and, and again, I feel like we've only scratched the surface on, and I'm wondering where we might direct people uh if they are interested.
1: Yeah, so I would normally point you to our website. Actually, you know what? I'm going to point you to our website and yep. throw this out there. So um, it's uh, disabledlist.org. It's crap. Um, And we want to uh, change the website. And what we want to do is is we want to use it as commentary. So when on the internet, when a feature is down, when access has been revoked or when, um, you know, something isn't working correctly, uh, what they say is this website or this feature is disabled. And so what we want to do is we want to change the disabled list website to this website is disabled. So if anybody can help us with that, uh, and what we want to talk about is, is that, you know, it doesn't have to mean access revoked. It doesn't have to mean um, that it's not working or it's broken or it's down. Right. Um, so disabledlist.org, the website's crap. My website is thegirlwiththepurplecane.com. Uh, Twitter, it's E-L-I-Z-E Jackson. Um, and, yeah, say hi.
0: That's great. We'll send people there. I'll put links okay. to all of that in the show notes. Liz, this was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, and um, you know, let me know if you ever have any questions. <laughs> Absolutely,
0: we'll do. Thanks so much. And that's another episode of Presentable.